I ask you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18 today as we last week began a series through the book of James there in the New Testament. Uh, We've been making our way through this letter, through this book, uh, through the end of November and then right in time for our Advent series. So James chapter 1, we'll be looking today at verses 12 through 18. If you found your way there, I'd like to ask you to stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures." Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us understand our trials and temptations. Father, would you allow this word that you have inspired to be applied in our lives in a way that would bring refreshments to weary souls, that would bring strength to where there is weakness, that would bring hope to where there is despair. Father, have your way now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. When is the last time that you cleaned out your inbox? Some of you have those days, a couple of days a year maybe that you call purge days, right? Where you spend like half the day cleaning out your email inbox. Maybe you never clean out your inbox. If you're one of those people that even if your iPhone, you know, has the little notifications, and if it's like over 10,000, just don't talk to me because that would bug me to no end, right? And so uh, some of us like to have that number uh, zeroed out every day. In all seriousness, um, I did read a book just this past uh, spring, a book called Do Things Better by Tim Challies. It's a little paperback, great little read that has helped me tremendously in organizing the clutter of my own uh, life. And one of the things that that book encouraged that I have now developed is that instead of having purge days, I zero out my inbox every Thursday. Thursday is my Friday, and so by the end of the day on Thursday, most weeks, not every week, but most weeks, my inbox is empty. I have all of my my emails where they need to go, either deleted or in the proper files. In fact, I have a various assortment of folders in my email uh, place that has titles, so home groups or um, discipleship or deacons, elders, counseling. I'll have all these little, little boxes where I will put your emails, and so if I'm not responding to you, this is why you're stuck somewhere in those files. I even have a reply folder where I will put a, 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 an email, if I need to think about it some, and reply later on, I'll put it in the reply folder. I'm supposed to check that every now and then and reply to those emails. And so, you know, I have all of this organization going on in my Microsoft Outlook. Sounds much better than it really works, but 
That's, that's what's going on. But one of the things that we all have grown accustomed to is that junk mail folder, right? If some of us are fortunate enough to have uh, however those things work, you know, a lot of times our junk mail goes directly to that folder and we don't have to sort through it. But when we do, we, we usually are pretty good at managing our junk mail. In fact, we're so good at it that we can recognize junk just by looking at the title of the email and immediately, without reading it, file it to the junk to the junk drawer, junk file, right? It's easily recognized and disposed of. You know, as I thought about email, and as I thought specifically about junk mail, I thought, wouldn't it be nice if sin came like junk mail? Easy to recognize, easy to ignore, and easy to dispose of. But that's not how sin typically works, is it? Sin is often not so easy to recognize. In fact, sin is often alluring and deceptive. It's not something that we naturally ignore and click delete to, is it? You know, as James continues here in chapter one. Last week, he introduced this, this theme, not, not, not far into his letter there in verse two, he, he began to talk about trials. We know that he's writing to a, a group of believers, probably a lot, most of them Jewish Christians that have been scattered uh, away from Jerusalem because of certain persecutions and pressures and they were undergoing quite uh, a variety of trials. And James is encouraging them to to count them all joy. Remember what we talked about last week, that that that's not smiling your way through it and enjoying every minute, but rather having a settled confidence in the sovereignty and providence of God as you go through those trials, trusting him that he is good and that he's working for your good. But as as he continues to elaborate now in verse 12 on this understanding and what our understanding should be when it comes to trials, he begins to go a little bit further and deeper because what happens oftentimes in the midst of trial is that it's in those moments that we are most prone to sin. Temptation is active in trial. Now, temptation is active outside of trial. You don't have to be going through a trial to be tempted to sin. However, Verse 12 and connecting it back to verses 2 and 2 through 11. Certainly in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our difficulties and struggles, and we can define trials in a million different ways. I mean, some are slight and some are heavy, and we can go on and on about those. But in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our weariness, it's in those moments that we are are tempted oftentimes to cave and sin. One way that you could think about it is trials on the outside can become temptations on the inside. And so when we think about these two, we wanna think about them together and in just a moment we're gonna walk through verses 12 through 18 to consider how we ought to approach our trials and specifically approach temptation in light of the trials that we may be going through. You can apply what we're gonna say about the temptations to temptation even when you're not being tried. But here James keeps them together because he knows that as 
these believers have been scattered, and as these believers are struggling and being pressured and persecuted, they're going to be prone to sin. Just think about that. I mean, when are you most prone to disobey God? I know for me, it's when I'm tired. When I'm tired, when I have felt the, the pressure of a, of a day, good or bad, when I am tired, I am grumpy. My temper is short. My tendency to sin is enhanced. That's not the only time I'm tempted. I'm certainly tempted when I have full rest, whatever that means. Let's think about this together this morning. I want us to consider how we are called to respond in light of the trials and specifically the temptations that come in light of those trials, okay? I'm gonna walk through this passage together today and see how we are to called to respond. Number one, in light of our trials and temptations, we are called to run with endurance. We're called to run with endurance. In verse 12, James says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Here in verse 12, James pronounces a beatitude. You thought the beatitudes were in Matthew, right? Well, here's a beatitude, a beatitude, a blessing, and specifically a blessing for the one who remains steadfast under trials. Now, blessed or blessed here in verse 12 is a word that the Jewish people were quite fond of. One way that you could think about it, it was, it was a word that meant to be happy in God. Now, this happiness was not conditioned upon circumstances, but rooted in that settled confidence in who God is. And so I know for us, the word happy has this meaning today that, that really uh, is, is really more connected to, um, to, to, to joy or this emotional, not joy, but emotional response to things. Happy today in our thinking and our English understanding of it means it, comes, it has a smile usually attached to it. And it's just that emotional response to something that's good and it makes you happy, right? Maybe a better word we could use is, is fortunate. Blessed, I'm fortunate. Blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial. Look at the wording here. James, James says, blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test. Grab those two words right there, trial and test. James uses the word trial and then a moment later uses the word test. Do you, do you see what's going on here? The same exact event he describes with two different words. He did it in verses two and three, we saw from last week. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Here again in verse 12, test and trial are two words used here to re refer to the same event. The fact that a trial is also a test should give us a should give us some level of encouragement because we know that particular trials are not wasted. Rather, they have purpose and design if they're a test. 
As you walk through a particular trial, we saw from verses two through four, we're, we're being called to remain steadfast in the midst of that trial because of the eternal impact it will have on our lives. We saw that from verse three and four. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness have its, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, mature. So then you may be more and more like Christ. Think about this, friends. All trials are temporary. Now, some may be longer and some may not feel so temporary. But all trials are temporary. All of them. And we might not find we may we may find that we're not relieved from a particular burden for a long time or a particular trial for a very long time, but we press on. Here's the the instruction we receive here. We are called to remain steadfast under that trial. Now, why? Or what, we could ask, what, what, what leads us to do that? Why ought we to remain steadfast in our trials? Why, why, why shouldn't we just cave? Why, why should we not just say, this is too much for me to bear, I'm out of here? Whatever that means. Well, there are two reasons I want to give. You could maybe say motives. Two reasons why we are to remain steadfast under trial. One is because we are motivated here by a reward promised by God. Blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial for what does it say? For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. I'm using this, this phrase here, run with endurance, because that's what Paul's doing. He's using this, this athletic picture here of one who seemingly is running this race and receiving this, this wreathed crown at the end to mark that they have finished the race. This crown that he's using here, the crown of life, is, is, is no, just not some wreathed crown. What he's talking about here is, is eternal life, everlasting joy. He says, run with endurance for you who do this, who, who remain steadfast under trial, will receive the crown of life. You will receive the heavenly reward. Now that's quite a motive. I don't know if you're like me, but when I hear we should remain steadfast under trial because by doing so, God's going to bless us with a reward, that makes me a little nervous. Because that, that smells like prosperity gospel. We're out to be blessed as we obey. Or, Frankly, it smells a little selfish, doesn't it? Oh, well, I'll obey God because what I'm going to get out of it. That's why I've never been a big fan as a parent of doing the reward system with my children. 
I don't want them to obey because of what they're going to get out of it. I don't want them to obey because it's the right thing to do. It honors the Lord and it respects the parents. Now, that does, you know, that ideally that's how it should go in the home, but we live in a fallen world and it's not always the case. Uh, I have given my kids rewards for obedience, even though I'm not a big fan, fan of doing it. But let me just ask this question. Are rewards always bad? Are rewards okay when it comes to being faithful to God? I mean, we could come to this passage and say, well, shouldn't we remain steadfast under trial because it brings glory to God and it's out of gratitude to God? It's, it's, a, it's an act of devotion and worship to him. After, after all, because of who he is and all that he's done, it's an act of glorifying God and it's an act of gratitude to God. That's why we should remain faithful under trial. That's why we should be obedient and faithful. Glory to God, gratitude to God. That should be the ultimate motive. And I would say those are great motives, glory of God being the first and foremost. But that doesn't mean that when we think about obedience and faithfulness in the Christian life, that we should restrict our understanding of what fuels that obedience to one or two particular things when the Bible actually gives us many different motives and many different reasons as to why we should obey. And here we have an example of God actually talking about the reward, the heavenly reward that we're going to receive as being a motive which fuels our faithfulness in the midst of trial. See this in other places, in Luke chapter six, verse 35, where we're being instructed to love our enemies. Jesus says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your rewards will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. So James here is putting forward this, this crown of life, our heavenly reward, as a reason for persevering under trial. Now, the reason that we can say rewards are good in this context, or the reason that we could say the reward of heaven is not a bad motive is because we know that God himself is not detached from this reward, this, this reason, this, this ultimate crown of life that we will receive because part of the eternal heavenly reward that we will receive as the people of God is not just eternal life, but eternal life which includes the all-satisfying presence of God. This is why you cannot take heaven and detach it from Jesus, from God. If you want heaven without God, you've missed the point. In John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The all satisfying presence of God is part of this heavenly reward that we will receive as the people of God. So as Christians, We should not say, well, don't, you shouldn't obey God because you get to go to heaven. 
when the Bible actually says that's one of the many reasons we ought to obey, not the only, one of the many. We should say, you should pursue faithfulness and obedience because of God's reward, because he's part of that reward. So here we see one of the reasons that we remain steadfast under trials because we're blessed, or we're blessed to receive the crown of life. But another reason is that, that drives this is that we ought to be compelled by love for God or love of God. Notice there's a little phrase that I've not yet highlighted at the end of verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to who? To those who love him. Those who love him are the same group who are undergoing trials and testing who is the same people as my brothers that he introduces the letter to. Same group, the brothers, the Christians, the same people undergoing trials and testing are the same people he now talks about who love God. Here's the point. The promised crown of life is not for everyone. It's only for those who remain steadfast under trial, which are also those who love God. Let me say it this way. If you do not love God, you will not receive the crown of life. If you do not love God, you will not remain steadfast under trial. Bottom line, you will not receive the crown of life unless you are a Christian. Listen, non-Christians do not and cannot love God. Non-Christians do not and cannot love God. Left to themselves. It's not something that they wake up doing every day. It's not something, they may recognize God. They may say, yeah, I believe God exists. I may, they may say those things, but a non-Christian cannot truly, genuinely, from the heart, with sincerity, love God. It takes an act of God to change the person's heart, to bring about a love for him. Because the Bible teaches that we are all sinners who have strayed from him and rejected him. Friend, if you're here today and maybe that describes you. Maybe that describes where you are. Maybe, maybe you're thinking, yeah, I really don't love God. I'm, I'm not a Christian. Friend, the, the good news that we would want to share with you today is that's how we all once were. All of us born into this life without a sincere love for God. We weren't following him. We weren't even seeking for him, the Bible tells us. But listen, you may not love God, but listen, this is, this is life-changing, right? 
God loves sinners. And the, the good news that the Bible teaches is that God so loved the world, even when the world did not love him back, that God so loved this world that he was willing to send his only son into the world to be harassed by the world, to, to, to be ultimately crucified by the world, to die upon a cross when he had done nothing wrong. But there was, there was divine plan in that, wasn't there? See, God sent his only son into the world to live a life of obedience and perfection and yet die upon a cross to take the guilt and burden of our own sin upon his own shoulders. That's how much God loves the world. And friend, if you're here today and you think, I, I just, I don't love God. I want you to think about just how much he loved this world and people like you. That he was willing to give his only son to pay a price you could have never paid. And friend, if you're here today and, 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 and you don't know what it means to be reconciled to God, if you don't know what it means to, to be walking in obedience and faithfulness to God, understand that God has given his son for you so that if you would simply trust in him and believe in him, you will be forgiven of all your sins. You will be forgiven of all your sins. No one else can do that for you, but Jesus can if you would trust him. And then there's this great work that God has been doing and will continue to do in your life so that that love for him will continue to be cultivated and grow. Trust in Christ, friend. So we're compelled to persevere, to remain steadfast in our trials because of the reward that we will be given and because of the love for which we have for God. Number two, another way that we respond to temptation, trials, temptations that come out of trials, don't blame God. Run with endurance and don't blame God. Look at verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So as James urges steadfastness and perseverance in the midst of trial, he recognizes that temptation to sin will often be prevalent, will often, will often be present even in the midst of those trials. And he's like, listen, as you undergo this trial and as you undergo this testing, don't blame God for the temptations that come your way. Now listen, think about this. Those of you who like logic and reason, Yeah, okay, God will often allow and send trials into our lives and he's, he's somehow in charge of that. He uses those trials to test us, to refine us, to make us more holy. If I'm tempted to sin in the midst of that, would that not mean also that temptation to sin also comes from God? If he's allowed this trial into my life for my own good, would that not mean then that somehow God's responsible for the temptation to sin? The answer is no. He's not responsible for your temptations to sin. Verse 13 cannot be any clearer on that, can it? He himself tempts no one. 
couple things we need to look at here. Number one, we need to consider the source of our temptation. While God does allow or even bring trials into our lives, in no way does he tempt us. God does test us, but God does not tempt us. Please get that clear. God does test us, but he does not tempt us to sin. You know, when we're in the midst of a trial and we're tempted to sin, our response is always to look to someone else to blame, isn't it? Well, so-and-so, or had not they said this, I would have not acted in this way. Or had not this happened, I wouldn't have responded that way. Or had not this occurred, I would not have thought that way. And what we're doing is we're, we're justifying a sinful response and blaming either an occasion or someone else for our sinful response. We're experts at it. And it's a family trait that we've had all the way back to Adam and Eve. In fact, if you look in Genesis chapter two and three, we see this. Go back to the Garden of Eden. God created the world. He put Adam and Eve in the garden to care for the garden. And he tells them, listen, do enjoy this vast paradise, but there's just one thing I'm asking you not to do. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's in Genesis chapter two, verse 17. Don't eat of this tree because when you do, you will die. Okay, that should be easy enough, right? By Genesis 3, 6, the tree not the whole tree, but the fruit of the tree has been eaten. 2 verse 17, don't eat it. 3 verse 6, done deal, already eaten. Both Adam and Eve had partaken of the tree by this time. Now listen, when Adam was confronted about this, this action by God, notice his response. You find that in Genesis chapter three, verse 11 and 12. God asked Adam, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Who does Adam blame? He blames Eve, but above and beyond that, he blames God. The woman you gave me. God, this is your fault that I acted this way. Friends, when we are under pressure and temptation comes our way and we cave and we sin, the last thing we want to do is take responsibility for our sin. The last thing we want to do is take responsibility for our own foolish sin. And there are times in our lives when we actually have the audacity to blame God. God, you put me in this situation to fail. You knew I couldn't handle it. God, had you not allowed this to happen in my life, I would not have done this. God, why do you keep putting these traps or these obstacles in my way? Knowing that I'm just going to stumble. 
Friends, what James is doing here is he, is he is clarifying for us God's activity in the midst of our trials and temptations. While God does test us to strengthen us, he never tempts us to sabotage us. God does test us to strengthen our faith, but he will never tempt you to sabotage your faith, ever. So where does the temptation come from? If I was to just ask you that question, put it on the screen, I don't think it's on the screen, but if I were to put it on the screen and say, fill out a piece of paper right there, who, wh where does temptation come from? My guess is, is that most of us, probably all of us, would say, well, it comes from Satan. He's the great tempter, right? And it's true, he is the great tempter. He was certainly active in the garden, tempting Adam and Eve and enticing them and luring them. He, he was present there in Job's life to, to tempt. He was certainly there in, in Jesus's life, in the wilderness, tempting Jesus, wasn't he? So yes, Satan does tempt us. He's a master deceiver. Maybe others would say, what's this evil world in which we live? If that commercial wouldn't have been there, I wouldn't have acted and spent money that I shouldn't have spent. If that billboard wasn't flashing, I wouldn't have done it. It's interesting though that when James discusses the source of our temptation, at least here in this verse, neither Satan nor the evil world are mentioned. It's true that Satan and the evil world do tempt us. But right here, James doesn't highlight them. Like later on in chapter four, verse seven, James will talk about how we need to resist the devil and flee from him. So he's aware that Satan is a tempter, but right, right here, he, he doesn't say, verse, verse um, 14 does not read like this. It does not say, when each person is tempted, he is lured by Satan. Doesn't say that, does it? What does verse 14 say? But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Not a billboard. Not a commercial, not even Satan, his own desire. Friends, Satan is a great tempter and this world is evil. But we need not ultimately blame Satan for our sin. We alone are responsible. Someone put it this way, Temptation is not where we are the victim, but where we are the culprit. I don't know who said that. I wish I could give them credit because that's really good. Temptation is not where we are the victim, but where we are the culprit. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse nine, many of you know this. The heart, heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Friends, we and we alone are responsible for caving into temptation. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, verse 15, when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown 
brings forth death. Martin Luther was right when he wrote that great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He said, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Friends, if you were simply looking to yourself to pull yourself up through life and persevere on your own, your striving will be losing. You will fail. It's the source of temptation. Yes, we have outside influences, but we need not forget about that inward, most active and most present influence of our own sinful heart. I think Satan and the world get a lot of blame when oftentimes Satan, in order to tempt us, all he does is just leave us alone. Oftentimes his activity to tempt is actually to do nothing, to let us be. Let's talk about the progression of temptation briefly. Listen, I wanna encourage you here because I think sometimes we get so discouraged. Temptation to sin is not the same thing as sin. You better get that. Temptation to sin is not the same thing as sin. I think sometimes when we are being tempted and enticed and those inward desires are, are, are raising their, their ugly head and, and we're being lured, we, we begin to immediately feel the guilt of, and this is for Christians because non-Christians would not feel guilty, but as a Christian, you would, you would begin to feel the guilt of sin even when you're tempted and you are repenting of temptation. Friends, understand temptation is not the same thing as sin. It's dangerous. That's why we need to fight against it. But this is, this is that ground in which we're to wage war before sin actually takes place. I want you to see it here in the text. James talks about the progression of sin. When each person is tempted, he is lured, there's the temptation, by his own desire. Lured and enticed. Lured and enticed, temptation. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Not the same thing, there's a process, there's a progression going here. The desire, the temptation, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when fully grown, brings forth death. Friends, you have to understand that sin, the action of sin, is not some random, isolated event that just happens all of a sudden. There's a process that's going on, even if you're not alert to the process. This is where James is helping. All he's saying here is, friends, you need to be alert. You need to stay awake to the process of what's going on in your own hearts because of what temptation is doing to lead you to sin. There's a process leading up to sin, sinful actions. Just use a bunch of D's here to explain this process. Desire. Temptation usually begins with a, some kind of emotion or desire or longing for something. Then we could say there's deception. Our mind begins to rationalize or justify getting what we desire. And then there's a decision. The point at which we act upon that desire and deception which tied closely next is disobedience. Tied closely with the decision, we have now given over to sin. That which is desired and justified is now decided upon. Now, that left unchecked, we're told, leads to death. For the wages of sin is death, right? Now you need to understand, this is not how you operate. 
usually, this is not how I operate. Usually when we're, when we're being tempted, we're not saying, okay, there's the desire. Okay, oh, there comes the deception. Decision point, that's not how you work. You, you've, you've blown through the desire, the deception, the decision to disobedience before you even realize what's happened to you. And by the grace of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, James is helping us slow down to think about life in the context in the midst of trials and as temptations come. But friends, this could be true in any time we're tempted. The progression, guard your heart and check your desires because it's at the ground of desire where sin, seed of sin is planted. Consider what it is you're desiring and examine your own hearts before the Lord. Run with endurance, don't blame God. Number three, and finally, don't be deceived. Verses 16 through 18, James says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Really a continuation here, clarifying what God does do and what God does not do. He's already said God does not tempt you, and now he's going to tell them and tell us, this is what God does do, right? As you're being tempted to sin in the midst of your trials, God is not the one tempting you. That's your desire giving birth to sin. So God does not tempt you, but okay, this is what God does do. Verse 16, every good, or verse 17, every good gift and perfect gift is from above. God is the one giving you good things, not bad things. Two quick things here. Number one, we have a warning, and number two, we have a reminder. Let's look at quickly at the warning. He gives a strong warning in verse 16. Do not be deceived. To be deceived means to to go astray, to be mistaken, to wander away. James understands that the pressure his readers and us are facing could very well lead them to draw wrong conclusions. And when we are in a trial, we will face the same temptation. We too can lose perspective and grow vulnerable to sin. Or we could grow vulnerable to miss understanding God. Friends, God does bring and allow trials into our lives, but he always is for our good. Friend, what, what James is saying is, is don't be deceived. Don't get God wrong. Part of the, the outworking of fighting against sin, part of the practical response to sin is to have your theology right. If you're gonna fight against sin, you need to have a right understanding of God. Theology matters when it comes to fighting against sin, friends. If you get God wrong, you're gonna go wrong. Don't be deceived. Don't believe something false about God. That's what he's warning here. Friends, don't let the pressures mount up against you so that you begin to think about God wrong. Remember who he is. It's a reminder now, second part. God is not out to do you wrong. He's not out to sabotage you. He's not out to trick you or to trip you up. He is resolved to make you holy. He is resolved to save you from your sin and to transform you to make you more like Christ. Verse 17 is a refreshing reminder of what God 
his, intention, his intentions are, even in the midst of our trials. And James further defends that, that steadiness of God's goodness by pointing to his power over creation. He's the father of lights. Word light there most likely is a reference to the, the, the sun, the moon, the stars, those light. Did you see the moon last night, by the way? Big old thing. Sorry. That, God made that. God made the lights. And those lights will change, but God doesn't change. His power over creation and his power over salvation. Not only is God sovereign over creation, he is sovereign over salvation. The greatest demonstration of God's goodness and his perfect gifts are the gifts of salvation, or the gift of salvation. And your, listen, Christians, right here. Your salvation happened not because you willed it to happen, but because God made you born again. Don't ever take credit for something you did not do. Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Your salvation happened because God willed it to happen, because God brought you forth, because he put you in a place to hear the word of truth and the lights went on and the ears were unstopped and you're like, yes, that was God doing that. To him be the glory. So his ultimate expression, this is kind of being used here as, a, as the ultimate example of the goodness and favor of God. It's a reminder, God's good gifts, God only gives us good gifts. Even in the midst of our trials where he's making us mature, he's only doing what we need for our good. So as you walk through trials and are faced with temptation, be encouraged to run with endurance, knowing that there's a crown of life that awaits you, friends. Be restrained from blaming God when you're tempted, knowing that it's your desires that need to be addressed and be aware of the potential deception that can happen where you confuse the goodness of God with something else. Friends, the same God that brought you forth in verse 18 is the same God who will get you home as he's promised to that glorious crown of life. You can trust him and know that he and he alone is faithful and he will do it. To him be the glory and honor forevermore. Let's pray. Oh God, we do thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness. God, we realize this morning that as we think about our temptation, Lord, we know that that we are vulnerable people. We know that we often go astray. We often act upon those desires that are in our hearts, Lord. But Father, we want to just thank you today. Lord, we first wanna thank you that we have a great high priest who knows us and understands. For Lord, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one one in who every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Father, we thank you that Jesus bore the full weight and extent of the temptations and he never caved. And yet he willingly gave his life 
for those who did and would cave. Father, right now it may be that we have troubled hearts. Maybe we're in the midst of a storm and trial that's just battering us, Lord. Maybe we find ourselves this morning so discouraged because it seems that every time we turn around, we're caving into temptation. Maybe it seems, Lord, that, that, that we're just so, so, so filled with temptations in, in our daily lives, Lord, that it doesn't feel like that we're overcoming any of them. Maybe we're just about to give up on the whole Christian life because of that. Father, I pray that you would tend to the wounded heart right now that may feel that that you would tend to the heart right now that continues to struggle against sin and maybe just feels the, the weight and burden of captivity. Father, you are a God who releases the captive and sets them free. God, would you do that right now? Would you do that right now, Lord, in the hearts and lives of these who are gathered? Father, would you help us also to realize that when we live life in this fallen and broken world, there there will be not just frequent, but almost ongoing opportunities to give in to temptation. God, we need you to help us. Help us to trust the one who faced temptation and never caved. And yet the one, the same one who gave himself for all of us who would trust in him, all of us who have failed. Father, you know our hearts and you know our struggles right now, Lord. And Father, there may be some in this room that that are filled with pride. They say, well, I don't struggle with sin. I don't struggle with those things. God, would you humble that person? Would you help them to see that Their power and strength is not in themselves, but it's only in you. Father, would you help us to see what we need to see and respond in a way that pleases you today for your glory. And Lord, even as we long for that crown of life, we pray this in Christ's name, amen.